I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. On this week's episode of Good Faith Weekly, we're going to be catching up with Autumn. Also going to be talking about presidential bleach, as well as what does that mean for us theologically? so to speak. And then in our deeper dive, we're going to be taking a look about the importance of interfaith relationships during this pandemic. At ethicsdaily.com, this past week we wrote, we published a series of articles from theologians across the world, actually, talking about the importance of interfaith relationships. So you want to make certain you stay with us. So Autumn, how are things going this week? Things are going well. We are just, you know, I feel like our house has sort of turned into a menagerie. We um, had a puppy that we brought to into our family right before the calamity of this COVID-19 business. And since then, we've now adopted two little turtles. Oh, my goodness. So a puppy and two little turtles. Yep. So, and the puppy's yep. name is? Georgie. Georgie. Well, that's adorable. Yep. And the two turtles' names? We have slow-mo and zoom. <laughs> we had to have a little COVID reference in there, you know. Well, of course, slow-mo and zoom. Oh my yes. goodness. Are they getting along okay? No. Oh. Okay. Nope. They're really not. They are about the size of a silver dollar, maybe a little smaller. So we think they just came out of their eggs. And our kids have been so enchanted with these turtles. But the turtles, I think they are soon to be um, ninja fighting kind of turtles because oh, really? they just they just batted each other and hit each other and fight over the blueberries like nothing you've ever seen oh my goodness so they are truly brothers then i i think so i mean they look <laughs> how do you tell a turtle apart i don't know but they're darling and it's just part of that you know our kids aren't really going to school right now they're having some zoom so we're just focusing on science lessons right now yeah. Well, good. Well, that's a lot of fun. I mean, uh, you needed a, a couple of more additions to your household during this. There just uh, wasn't enough going on quarantine. here. <laughs> that's right. And you guys are celebrating in your house. We are celebrating. Last night, my oldest son took his very last college class. He walked down from his final Zoom class with a big grin on his face, and he was met with uh, confetti and congratulations from all of us and uh, it, was, it was a kind of a surreal but exciting moment for him uh it was funny he uh for the last couple of weeks he's acted pretty much like every college student has and slept in a little bit late but for some reason this morning when he didn't have to get up he got up early he's in the real world now i know that's right that's exactly <laughs> right so uh, but no he's he's doing well he is Chomping at the bit to get out to, to Los Angeles, uh, where he's going to end up. Uh, those of you who don't know, my son has pursued a career in comedy. Uh, so he has been studying comedy at Emerson College in Boston, as well as in Los Angeles. And uh, so he's looking forward to heading back out to L.A. to try to find a job uh, uh, behind or in front of the camera, either or. Uh, so we're looking forward to getting him back out to California. Well, Autumn, did you hear the news about the presidential announcement this last week that if we wanted to get rid of COVID-19 inside of our bodies, all we need to do was drink a little bleach or, or shine a little sun on ourselves and it might magically go away? I mean, listen, sometimes presidents have gone to law schools. Sometimes presidents evidently have gone to medical school and are scientists and know these things. 
Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, he had a hunch. Uh, you know, it was, it was so, so uh, Trumpian uh, of him <laughs> to, to make that <laughs> announcement or proclamation at the White House press briefing. You know, it, once I heard it, it, uh, it took me back to the Times that David Letterman, who was on The Late Show for so many years, he had a segment that he would run periodically called Great Moments in Presidential Speeches. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, Dave, I wish you were back. And this would have okay. been fantastic. It would overtake his whole show, I think. Yeah, right. Okay, but here's the like craziest part of all this to me. Now, what he said was, was bananas. And I have listened to it several times. Right. Um, but I still have people who are like, that's not what he said. I know. It's like, well. <laughs> that's not what he said. Or that's not how he meant it. Or he was being sarcastic. And to me, it just reads a lot like, most of the things that we hear, it sounds like a fourth grade student who didn't read the book and is trying to give a book report. Right. It was the craziest moment, especially when he looked over uh, at uh, the, the scientists and, and physicians uh, next to the podium there. And they were all very interested in their shoelaces at that time. Yeah. Her little feet were just patting like, please don't look at me. Please don't look at me. <laughs> That's right. We've all been there in class. Oh, please, dear Lord, don't call on me. Please. Oh. But you know what was funny about that uh, afterwards? Obviously, it was very serious because, I mean, there were actually people who were calling the hotline uh, asking if they should drink uh, uh, bleach or, you know, do something. Disinfect it. Yeah, disinfect it. That's and people are saying, oh, that could be medicine. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but never in the history of my life have I heard someone call a medicine a disinfectant. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's not a thing. But there were people who actually called the, you know, the poison hotline to, to see if this is something they should consider. Sure. And what was crazy about it is that they they were at a point where they thought, well, maybe he's serious. But this sounds so crazy that I think I should call the hotline. <laughs> I'm glad they did that gut check. You should always consult with scientists. There you go. That's absolutely right. But you know, when he said this, it started kind of me thinking about back to my adolescent days, uh, this whole idea of, you know, somehow we can cleanse the inside of, of a virus. And then I started, for some reason, I was having these echoes of youth ministers gone by uh, telling me when I was uh, in high school and junior high, if, uh, you know, I only said the right things to God, or if I were to pray the right prayers, that somehow I would be miraculously cleansed of all my unrighteousness. And they would cite uh, verses like 1 John 1, 9 and things like that, that uh, mm -hmm. if we just did this, then somehow magically everything would just go away. And I just thought, not only was what the president said horrible science, but that's kind of bad theology too. Um, I be certainly believe in the, the forgiveness of God, but it does not just entirely wipe away the uh, ramifications of sin in my life or the ramifications that sin I have committed that has affected other people's lives. Were you taught that growing up? Oh, 1,000%. Yeah. And this whole concept of forgive and forget, forgive and forget. And, and here's the thing, if you're supposed to forgive and forget, and that's like this holy thing to do, then why did God build us with such deep, emotionally woundable hearts and minds that can remember? So I'm not saying you shouldn't forgive necessarily. Um, but if, if that doesn't apply to others, then it can't just apply to you either. 
it's terrible theology. Yeah, it really is. And so, you know, it, it started me down this track. And so I started kind of looking at those texts that I mentioned a moment ago and looking at uh, kind of a language study of it and about to get real geekier on you. Um, but this whole sense of confession, this whole sense of cleanliness um, really has this element of justice within it. And we cannot celebrate forgiveness. We cannot uh, separate cleanliness uh, with out justice presence. And what justice uh, included in these concepts that we mentioned means that there are ongoing consequences to the mistakes that we make, to the sins that we commit. Uh, while forgiveness and hopefully love prevails, there is also a sense that we are responsible for our actions and we will always be so. Uh, to me, people who talk about this magical formula of everything can be wiped away and everything can be forgotten is really uh, misleading theology because it's an absence of justice and an absence of responsibility by the one who is uh, at fault. Yeah. And so uh, I just, it's crazy how I, I got from Trump's, you know, crazy diatribe uh, to thinking about this, this theological. It's not so crazy because once a preacher, always a preacher. And can I just speedy quick fill in our listeners on one specific time when you were preaching at North Haven and you were doing our moment with children, children's yeah. time with a pastor. And I think someone brought maybe a live baby chick mm -hmm. in the mystery bag and you brought it out and hand to God, you said the words, Jesus is kind of like a baby chick. And when you can make jumps like that, Mitch, you can go straight from Trump to forgiveness of sins. <laughs> and no good, one's giving that an eye. That's my spiritual gift. <laughs> that's a spiritual gift, basically, of BS. It's what I've got. <laughs> Such a great preacher. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We got lots to talk about in this episode. Our next segment is going to be all about interfaith relationships and the importance of those relationships during pandemic. So stay with us. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And in this week's Deeper Dive, we're going to take a look at interfaith relationships. At ethicsdaily.com this past week, we ran a series of articles from some extraordinary writers that uh, covered the topic of interfaith cooperation, interfaith relationships, in particular, the importance of those relationships during periods of crisis like we are currently facing today. And one of those articles was written by Dr. Rob Sellers. Dr. Sellers is a former professor at Logston Seminary in Abilene, Texas. Dr. Sellers is also the past chair of the Parliament of World Religions that met a few years ago in Toronto, Canada. And in his article, he talks to us about the importance of interfaith relationships and why uh, not only cooperation is essential, but collaboration is essential uh, in periods of crisis. One of the things that he mentions that really resonated to me is trying to get away from this idea of independence that we so that is so fiercely ingrained into us, and recognizes and recognize the interdependence that we have among ourselves as a community and people of faith. So 
you know, it's, it's just so, so important in today's age. And, you know, I don't know if, I can't remember if we've talked about it on the pod before autumn, but, you know, used to growing up in uh, Eastern Oklahoma, I knew very few people outside of my own uh, ecosystem. Um, most of the people were middle class, uh, white families, uh, Christian, um, Protestant at that. Uh, I didn't have some Catholic friends, but had very few Jewish friends and not any uh, Muslim friends whatsoever. So uh, did you grow up at all? And, and you grew up in Texas. Uh, but Yeah, uh, it was Central Texas and a pretty similar um, situation. And even our um, congregations that were ethnically diverse still were the same denomination. You know, they just had a different kind of food with their potlucks, basically. Yeah, sure. You've got four kids. How are you raising them in this interdenominational, interfaith world that we live in? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's something that my husband and I were both really passionate about um, from the beginning. He went to seminary and it led us to asking a lot of questions. And that was really where our transformation from our evangelical roots to our not so evangelical selves today came. And from that, um, we learned a lot about other faiths, other religions, um, raising our kids in a place like Norman, um, even though it's in Oklahoma, we have a university here. Um, we are near a, a city. And so we are raising them in schools where there are people who are Sikh, who are Muslim, who um, don't have a faith background the same as theirs, but we also allow our kids a lot of a lot of freedom when it comes to exploring their own faith. Have really been careful about the churches and the religious experiences that we expose them to, because we we don't want them hemmed into one specific belief set. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, um, but you know, that's so what we're doing. Did you grow up? Because I grew up in this mentality that it's almost a capitalistic uh, theology. Mm-hmm meaning that we are in competition not only uh, with other faiths, but even with other denominations. And it was all about how many baptisms uh, that we were able to uh, perform annually, how many people worshiped Sunday morning, you know, what was the tithes and offerings for the week? It was all this. It was all on a board. It was all on a leather board. It was in front of the the board. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And it seemed like it was just this, this heightened sense of competition uh, that really stems from more of a capitalistic mindset than it does a, a true theological understanding of how God uh, put this world together. But I'll never forget, I was uh, at uh, the third uh, Muslim Baptist dialogue held in Wisconsin that was sponsored by the American Baptist Churches USA. And they brought uh, uh, Muslim scholars and Baptist scholars uh, and imams and pastors together to just talk about the importance of uh, interfaith conversation uh, in particular between Baptist and Muslims. And I took my good friend, friend of the pod, Imam and Chauncey up there with me. And he and I were talking to the group uh, as a whole. And I'll never forget when I told the group, the moment that Imad became my really good friend is when I began to understand him, not as a Muslim imam, but as Imad and Chauncey, the human being. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I ceased being in competition with him. Yeah. Yeah. 
It wasn't about wins and losses. It wasn't about conversion. It was about a mutual existence between two human beings who have distinct beliefs, uh, who are convicted by those beliefs, but also understanding that there is this, uh, there's a God in this universe that has created this universe that has put us at this moment, at this time together. And we should not be in competition with one another, but we should be collaborating with one another. And that was a poignant moment for me uh, in, in my theology, in my relationship with other faiths, when I stopped being in competition with them and started trying to be a collaborator with them. Yeah. I, I think that's a really valuable lesson. And I think one thing that, you know, organizations like Good Faith Media do is we do explore those interfaith relationships and interfaith dialogues. And as we explore that kind of collaboration, I think it really informs us on how to collaborate better intra-faith. And, you know, if you can sit across the table from an imam who has, you know, a very different religion, you might say, even though there are so many parallels, um, then how much more collaborative should we be able to be when we're sitting next to someone who believes exactly the same as we do? Um, I think it's this pandemic has been a really interesting time that I've seen a lot of congregations breaking down and they're feeling division because some people want to go back to church and some people don't want to go back to church. And we like this element of the virtual church and we don't like this element. Um, I think there's, there's some intelligence that can kind of flow both ways from that connection. Yeah. As difficult as this pandemic and quarantine has been, you know, it has been nice to see collaboration across not only denominational lines, but interfaith lines as well. Uh, I was on a podcast uh, just the other day. I was interviewed by Rabbi Jack Moline out of Washington, D.C. Jack is the executive director for the Interfaith Alliance, and we talked a little bit about what we were trying to accomplish in Good Faith Media. But seeing rabbis and imams and pastors coming together uh, to help everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what religion they aspire to, that we're coming together as a global human community trying to cope and get through this pandemic together. It is really a beautiful and inspirational thing to see and to experience. Speaking of collaboration and collegiality, our guest in our final segment of today's pod is going to be three individuals, Marv Knox of Fellowship Southwest, Rick McClatchley of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Texas, and Bob Ellis, the Dean of Logston Theological Seminary in Abilene. These three individuals are working side by side with Perkins Seminary from Southern Methodist University and Bright Seminary from Texas Christian University to create a different dynamic for theological education and training the next generation of ministers. So you want to stay with us as we talk about this really unique collaboration in bringing people of faith and uh, cross-denominational education to the church. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and we are very fortunate this week to have three honored guests with us. 
We have Dr. Bob Ellis, who is the Dean at Logson Seminary in Abilene, Texas. We have Dr. Rick McClatchley, who is the coordinator for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship in Texas, and Marv Knox, who's the coordinator for Fellowship Southwest, which is in partnership with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship on a national level. To the three of you, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, we appreciate you joining this week, and uh, we start uh, each interview, it seems like, uh, during this pandemic, asking the very same question. That is, everybody feeling okay? Yes, doing, doing well. Doing great, thanks. Good. Well, we wish uh, all of you the best and uh, hope everybody, you and your family and in your office is healthy during this uh, terrible crisis that we're in. Well, we're not here to talk about COVID-19. It seems like a departure and a welcome departure uh, from the conversation that usually uh, we've been engaged in over the last several weeks. But we're here to talk about a very exciting announcement that was made this week, a venture between Logston Seminary, Fellowship Southwest, CBF Texas, SMU, and TCU in Texas. And it involves the form the, the the forming of a new entity to help students uh, begin and pursue their theological education. It was announced uh, a few months ago now that uh, Logston Seminary on the campus of Hardin-Simmons University would be closing eventually, and Dr. Ellis is the dean of that seminary. And from what I understand, you've been in uh, constant contact with Marv and Rick and with TCU and SMU to figure out a way that your students can continue their theological education in the future. So uh, tell us a little bit about this new venture that uh, all of you are involved in. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the chance to talk about this, this uh, Mitch. Um, we, we're heartbroken over the, the closing of Logston and see that it will be uh, a loss for uh, Baptists in this part of the world uh, in, in the future to not have that opportunity. And, and so this, this new, conversation has begun suggesting that uh, those who uh, will have finished out their employment at, at uh, Logston Seminary in about a year might join uh, with CBF and uh, with uh, Perkins and Bright and uh, the Logston faculty could offer some courses for Baptist students in particular at those schools in a way that would preserve some of the ethos of uh, Logston and what we have been about as, uh, as big-hearted Baptists, while at the same time in a trans-denominational way linking with other seminaries. Excellent. And uh, Rick, Marv? Well, I'll let Marv go first because he is on the um, uh, I think on the advisory board at Perkins, so he's got some insight there too. Um, yeah, so you know we we work closely with churches. That's the first place we really start is working alongside congregations and caring deeply about them and their future and the people that um, feel that God is calling them for ministry. Uh, they come out of the congregations, and so we've been alongside uh, Logston for a long, long time uh, and and other schools to uh, help uh, to train these uh, ministers and. Uh, we all sense a deep um, loss with uh, with the anticipated closing of Logston down the road, um, and uh, so we've been looking for opportunities. What what are some good fits for some of the students that are here in the Southwest that 
that uh, want to serve the church uh, and want to look for their theological education. And so uh, we've been grateful for the opportunity to have these conversations uh, in the Metroplex, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex with, uh, with Perkins and with uh, Bright uh, with regard to uh, a possible futures, their openness to uh, think collaboratively uh, about how if students come there, they can get that Baptist distinctive that will be very valuable uh, for their formation uh, as young clergy. Um, Rick and I are really just honest brokers. We're trying to help folks that look forward uh, to doing ministry to find the best fit for them. And so it might be Perkins, it might be Bright, it might be Truett down in uh, Waco at Baylor. Uh, it could be elsewhere, selfishly, altruistically, that's what we want to do. Selfishly, we really don't want them to cross the Mississippi River and never come back. <laughs> well, to so all of our listeners that are on the other side of the Mississippi, he's just teasing, by the way. <laughs> we love you guys, but don't steal our creatures. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, this, this, this new venture is so intriguing to me. And, and first, let me just say, uh, you know, I grieve along with you, the loss of, of Logson Seminary and it, its uh, pending closing. But as all of you know, uh, it, it seems to me that in the midst of uh, deep grief that we have had as a Baptist family, that oftentimes some really amazing things begin to merge out of that grief and out of that loss. Those of us who endured the, uh, the wars of the Southern Baptist Convention saw new ministries began to emerge, new institutions begin to emerge, new in, uh, new uh, seminaries begin to develop and, and launch, and so out of deep grief, out of deep loss, sometimes we do our best work. And what is so intriguing to me about this moment in this particular announcement is that, uh, Dr. Ellis, you used a term transdenominational. And that there is this, this concept that is beginning to form in this project where you have uh, a traditional Southern or a Methodist uh, university and, and TCU Christian university and a Baptist institution, all three of these working together to provide this really comprehensive theological uh, education to future ministers. Do you all see this as the future of theological education, not to downplay denominational identity or, uh, or loyalty, but to really lean into this transdenominational world we're living in? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start, and I'm sure the other two have some insights also. It, it seems like we're, we're in a day where change is coming so rapidly in so many dimensions of our culture. And certainly change is coming to the church. And in a few decades, I think the church in a lot of ways will look different. Well, it only makes sense then that theological education should look different in the future. And so one of the possibilities is that we share resources in a creative way and that we'd be open to finding um, across denominational lines those points where we have connections. I mean, it, it's sometimes the case within a denomination that your, your particular ethos and perspective more readily lines up to a similar person in another denomination than some folks in your own denomination at the opposite end of the spectrum. And so that's a little bit of what we are discovering as we're, we're exploring this relationship uh, as, as some Logston uh, faculty speak with uh, Perkins leadership and Bright leadership. 
you find this wonderful kind of connection that also has the potential of cross fertilization. So some things that Bright are, is quite strong uh, about and quite uh, good at can contribute to uh, Baptist students and Methodist students and what Methodists are strong at contribute to others and what Baptists are strong at can contribute to these other denominations. So that's, that's, I think it's not maybe the model, but it is a model among many that will develop in terms of theological education uh, to work across uh, what used to be hard and fast lines and those lines are dissolving a bit. And I, I find that really exciting and creative. Now, Rick, uh, you work closely with uh, congregations in Texas. Uh, do you think this model of theological education is going to be beneficial for the future church? I think it will be because in the past, Baptists, we have sort of uh, worked in isolation, uh, especially Baptists in the South have done that because of Southern regionalism that occurred after the Civil War. Um, another impact, of course, was landmarkism that started in the mid-19th century that said Baptists were the only true churches that ever existed, and all of the others were false uh, churches. And then you had um, also, for example, in Texas, you sort of had Texas provincialism that uh, we were could do everything by ourselves. We didn't need anybody else. Now you mentioned those, uh, Mark mentioned those people on the other side of the Mississippi. They know about that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so you have uh, sort of that ethos a lot of times in our churches where Baptists just didn't feel like they needed to connect with anyone else. Mm -hmm. Uh, what I'm discovering among uh, the churches that are involved with CBF is a growing desire to have ecumenical engagement. They're no longer willing to be uh, churches that sort of have their, their Baptist distinctives over against everybody else, but they want to have their Baptist distinctives among other Christians. And so that there is this sharing of the strengths of our Baptist tradition with fellow believers. And likewise, fellow believers can share the strengths of their traditions with us. Mm -hmm. And we're all improved and strengthened through that process. And I think a lot of that will begin on the seminary level, whereas young seminarians receive their education in an ecumenical context more and more. Uh, that is going to be, I think, a strength in the future. And so for me, uh, in the churches I work with, I think it's very powerful. Marv can talk about when, uh, one of the things that we found in our conversations with the formation of the Fellowship Southwest was this burning desire for ecumenical connection among the Baptists that we talk with. Marv, why don't you yeah, talk about Yeah, Marv, that's exactly what Fellowship Southwest is about, is finding these ecumenical connections uh, in mission or on mission. That's right. We're, we're uh, Fellowship Southwest is a relatively new Cooperative Baptist Fellowship network, three years old, uh, not quite. And uh, from the start, that's been part of uh, our aspiration. At the very least, is uh, is building these bridges and having relationships. You know, our 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 lay people are practical ecumenists anyway. I mean, they 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 teach alongside or go to work alongside folks of other backgrounds. And they, they get along and they share their stories and this sort of thing. And we're finding, I think, an increasing hunger uh, to be more effective uh, congregationally and in our communities by, by being very uh, cooperative and collaborative. And, and so it seems to me the time is right. It's a Kairos moment for, for fulfilling that and living it out in manifold ways. Well, it's very exciting to hear. And uh, well, we wish you all the best. 
Um, let's talk a little bit more. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some practical elements of this, uh, Dr. Ellis. You, you know, you'd mentioned a moment ago that Logson Seminary will be uh, closing its doors. Uh, there is a promise by the seminary to continue that education for any student who wants to remain there. From what I understand, um, but obviously there are going to be some who are looking to transfer out maybe possibly into this new venture that you're creating at Perkins and, and Bright. Um, Autumn and I grew up, many of you grew up in a situation where it was a residential program. You moved uh, to the area. Uh, you lived in seminary housing or off-campus housing. You lived in the community. You served churches in the community. Um, how is this going to play out for students and professors who are part of this new program? Will they be remaining uh, where they are? Is this a remote online program or is it a residential program? Great question. Um, there are really, I guess, two, two aspects to it. One, it has to do with current logs and seminary students. Uh, since the Master of Divinity is a three-year program, we've certainly got some students who finished one year and they have two to go. And so they see a long stretch in front of them. Others of our students will finish up uh, within uh, a few months to a year. So most of the seminary faculty at Logsdon will be in place for next year and will be able to teach out, is what we call it, teach out some students. But those are not finished by that point in time. A few may stay at, at Logsdon, but uh, most will probably be going somewhere else. And uh, so after, after Logsdon Seminary faculty finish their final year of contract um, in uh, 2021, the, the way it might look is that, uh, that those faculty could serve as adjuncts for Perkins or Bright, in particular to offer courses for Baptist students and to create some sort of Baptist community, which might involve some Logson students who are not yet finished. But we hope it will also grow, and this is the second part of it, grow into attracting students uh, across uh, the, the ranks for, for uh, Baptists, especially Cooperative Baptist Fellowship churches, to provide an education in Texas, which has a sort of breadth and riches, richness and progressiveness to it uh, for students who have not yet heard that call, but will in, in years to come. We don't really know about the geography of it. Uh, the faculty who will be involved are, are pretty experienced at uh, uh, video teaching, uh, especially as we're trying to finish up this semester in online teaching. But I dream of a sort of physical presence too in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in some fashion, uh, maybe through hybrid courses, so that uh, there is that uh, personal face-to-face -face kind of community uh, that's a part of what, uh, what might develop here. Excellent. Autumn, do you have any questions uh, for our panel? Speedy quick have to jump in because my background is in higher ed and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna call you Dean Ellis because that's what I would call you if um, you know we were in higher ed together and I just love the spin factor that deans have because earlier today Mitch had an interview in which he recalled he referred to us as Baptist's butt that's what he called us Whereas <laughs> you Dean Ellis called us Baptist with big hearts or big-hearted Baptist and that's so much better that is what I have to admit. <laughs> I was referring to, Rabbi Jack Moline at Interfaith Alliance was interviewing me earlier today on his show, and uh, he was talking about Baptists, and he was wanting me to clarify what kind of Baptist we were, and I said, well, Jack, that's... Big-hearted Baptist. Because I always have to have this conversation, and all of you on this panel know exactly what I'm talking about, so we're <laughs> Baptists. 
but we are a different kind of Baptist. So I called us Baptist. But when you work in higher ed, you have to be able to spin things like really sunny so you can attract students. And so I just, I really appreciated that higher ed moment that we just shared. That's good. <laughs> and then I also loved, uh, Rick, what you talked about us being Baptist at people. And I feel that in my bones. I've been Baptisted at and I've Baptisted at people. So definitely happens. Uh, well, we're really excited about this new venture. I know that uh, three of you are as well. Is there anything else that our audience or potential students uh, out there listening need to know about this uh, this new joint effort? Mitch, I think that uh, that there's uh, it's it's a part of a, of a larger cloth as well. We talked about that in the general ecumenical kind of relationship, but but also I think uh, we're, we're this is giving us an opportunity to rethink how do we uh, how do we help along the entire track of, of ministry preparation. And so I think what will come out of this also will be coming alongside churches and helping them uh, as they help to call out the call and, and to encourage young people to consider the vocation of ministry, uh, helping them here with seminary, like we've been talking about for the last few minutes, but then also helping them to end their first calls. Uh, I, I think we may have some, uh, some uh, residency programs, some uh, fellowships that may come out of this, peer learning groups, lifelong learning applications. And, and so it's, I think we're going to own a bigger picture of what does it mean to help fully form uh, ministers that will come out of the conversations we're just beginning to have out of a crisis moment with Logsdon and a Kairos moment of, of ecumenical engagement. You know, Phyllis Tickleoff talked about when she was alive in her book, The Great Emergence, about this great rummage cell that the church has every 500 years and the seismic shifts that occur. And I don't know about the rest of you, but it certainly feels as though the church is going through a seismic shift. Uh, and a lot to do with that. Culture has a lot to do with that. Globalization has a lot to do with that. Uh, but what's exciting to me is hearing about ventures just like this, people collaborating together, uh, not only within their own denominational uh, families, but across these denominational lines and thinking long-term, as Marv just pointed out, this lifelong learning, lifelong theological education that's going to be able to take place. Uh, it's an exciting time to be a part of the church, and I appreciate uh, all the work the three of you have put into this. Well, Autumn has a final question for us as we conclude the interview, so Autumn, we'll let you take it away. Perfect. At Good Faith Media, our tagline is, there's more to tell. And so we like to conclude our interviews by asking our guests, what is your more to tell? Well, the thing that I would like to say is um, I'm very, very uh, impressed by the quality of the uh, men and women that we have coming into seminary. And I think that they are a fantastically gifted group. And uh, if we can help get them trained and help them be successful in their first ministries, I think they will be very helpful in helping the church make the transition uh, that Mitch was talking about a few moments ago. So I'm very hopeful because of what I see coming up. Well said. Very well said. The rest of you? I, uh, I've been thinking about the uh, way in which uh, we Baptists tend to often hold the Holy Spirit at arm's distance. We're sort of scared of uh, where that might take us. But we, we see in Genesis 1 this marvelous creativity of the Spirit. And, and uh, in the John 3 interview with Nicodemus, Jesus says, listen to the wind. You don't know whether it's come from or where it's going. And so as, as one phase of my educational career is ending, I'm really excited about the potential creativity here. 
to to engage other institutions in a in a fresh new way, but as Samard was suggesting, to also explore other ways of doing ministry preparation even outside of the institution. And I hope in this process we can be agents of following the Spirit of God, blowing to places uh, where we don't yet know it will take us. Excellent. And Marv, you got the last word. Yeah, I, I, part of my job is trying to uh, foster ecumenical engagement. And uh, a lot of times the hardest is getting just Baptists to work with Baptists. Uh, but I've got a great story from uh, the border of Texas and Mexico, U.S. and Mexico, uh, where we're doing a lot of work with immigrants down there. And, uh, and we're Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and one of our best partners is a Southern Baptist of Texas church. We're actually even helping uh, to build a, a respite center on their property, raising the money for it. And then one just of our churches... Perspective, uh, real quick, just for yeah. our listeners. So the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, a more moderate to progressive arm of the Baptist family, and the Southern Baptist of Texas congregations, a more conservative element of the Baptist family. So crossing theological lines to work together for a common cause, that's great to hear. And there's more than, than, than that. So then another church here in the Dallas area for whom uh, the, uh, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship isn't really quite progressive enough took up their Christmas offering and gave it to help build that building at that very, very conservative church down on the border because we all have the same heart beating for uh, helping the folks that Jesus called the least of these. Well, that's fantastic. One last question before we wrap up, and that is if our listeners wanted to find out more about this joint venture, where can they go to find out more about it? I would say to contact any of the three of us, uh, I'm at Hardin Simmons University, Logson Seminary, and can go to the logsonseminary.org website to find contact information and would love to visit with people who are interested. And Rick is with uh, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Texas, and Marv is with uh, Fellowship Southwest. So make certain you go to all three of their websites and check them out. You can find more information about this very exciting venture regarding theological education. Dean Ellis, Rick, Marv, thank you so much for joining us on Good Faith Weekly. We wish you and your families and this joint venture the very best. We're going to be praying for you and sending good thoughts your way.